Howdy, everybody. So today, we're going to start off this podcast with the Vietnam era. That is what we're going to be talking about today. So we've covered, you know, all of World War I and World War II, the Great Depression, Korea, Civil Rights Movement, the McCarthyism, Cold War, you know, everything, all that's amping up. And so now we're getting into the really gritty stuff with Vietnam, which a lot of you have been looking forward to, I'm sure. So let's dive into it here. All right. So with Vietnam, kind of what's going on at this time, Ho Chi Minh, he's the leader of the communist forces. He organizes a guerrilla war against the French in Vietnam because remember it had been French Indochina and the French took back the colony after World War II and there's a guerrilla war waging between the French forces that come back and the Vietnamese there but finally agreeing to withdraw his we're talking about Ho Chi Minh here his forces north of the 17th parallel and they agreed to all this at a conference in Geneva if there would be a promise to hold free and fair elections in the North and South of Vietnam. And Americans, they helped install a gentleman named Ngo Dinh Diem. And that's because they were opposed to Ho Chi Minh. And Diem is not going to be the man they hoped for. But uh, 16,000 American military advisors, quote unquote, have been unable to help a DM because he's growing more and more unpopular and he starts really trying to think of the word here really goodness but he's very brutal in a way in trying to crush any rebellions anything that is deemed uh, seditious in any way or against what he wants uh, anybody that's not Catholic, right, he's going to be going against them. So he's uh, persecuting Buddhists as well. So he's not really a good guy, but he would be executed in a military coup in November of 1963, just before John F. Kennedy is assassinated. And Lyndon Johnson, when he becomes president, he's going to be keeping Vietnam kind of at arm's length he wants more support for his great society programs like Medicare and Medicaid, his war on poverty, right? With all the elementary and secondary education acts that he's going to be implementing. And then there's an incident called the Gulf of Tonkin. So American ships that have been patrolling the Gulf of Tonkin, they start providing cover for secret South Vietnamese raids against the North. And there were going to be three North Vietnamese patrol boats that exchanged fire with the Americans. A second incident happens two nights later. And there will be a follow-up investigation into what happened. But it's going to be inconclusive whether or not the enemy ships were really near the scene. But uh, the SecDef, Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, and the uh, National Security Advisor, NSA, uh, McGeorge Bundy, they advised that the current pre- present policy at the time would end up leading to defeat in Vietnam. So they say we should either escalate everything or just withdraw. And escalation was going to be a process of steady intensification, not just like some sharp, sudden increase. 
But in March of 1965, Lyndon Johnson, LBJ, he orders what's known as Operation Rolling Thunder. And this is a systematic bombing campaign that was targeted at trying to boost and bolster confidence in South Vietnam Vietnam, and cut off the supplies to the North. But in May of 1965, LBJ is going to order 3,500 Marines to Vietnam. By July of that year, more than 50,000 soldiers would land there. By 1966, there would be 185,000 troops in Vietnam. Within another two years, there was going to be more than half a million on the ground. So yeah, things are really, really amping up in Vietnam at this time. So kind of looking at the soldiers and what they were going through. So the men that are most willing to accept the draft are going to be blue-collar Americans. The middle-class blue-collar Americans. Upper classes, they're more likely to try and defer their enlistment under the selective service system. College students, you could easily avoid enlisting. You know, you just defer it while you're in school. Uh, those that were training in very important noble professions like teaching or engineering, they could defer as well. Students get enrolled basically in a lottery system for the draft. And while this is happening, these teenagers and college students, they're starting to try and find ways to avoid service. Not everybody is going to defer their enlistment. Some of them will continue on through like college education and such while go ahead and enlisting in the draft just in case they do get drafted. So they'll enlist in secret service or selective service, sorry. And you could easily get a doctor to sign an affidavit stating that you're unfit for service based on having something like flat feet, bad eyesight, weak knees. Uh, But not everybody can afford that, right? Uh, Hispanics and African Americans, they're less likely to have a lot of many skills during their training. So they are most likely to get sent into combat scenarios. Low income or poor, they're likely to not be selected for service because they often failed the physicals. But as the war is waging on, it becomes difficult for the GIs to determine the difference between civilians and the enemy. So as American soldiers are making their way across the jungles to kill the communist forces, which are known as the Viet Cong. V-I-E-T-C-O-N-G, Viet Cong. Sometimes you hear it called V-C. But civilians are likely to get killed in the wake of all this, unfortunately. And there's going to be a chemical that will be used in Vietnam here known as Agent Orange. And this is a defoliant. What it is is you spray it on and it helps get rid of the leaves and jungle vines. It breaks them down. And you spray all this up in the trees because enemy forces may be hiding up in the trees there. But unfortunately, the chemical has some very devastating side effects. If you get exposed to it, like whether on your skin or even like breathing it in, inhaling, which was most likely the form of being exposed to it, you become severely ill. And many suffer mental illness that wouldn't even present itself for years, if not decades to come. And there's going to be some other chemicals that get used during the war, like napalm. And napalm is basically a jellied, gelatinous form of gasoline that sticks to objects much better, like in that gelatinous form. And it burns for longer periods of time. That is napalm. And also another chemical that gets used at this time is white phosphorus. White phosphorus is a powder 
that gets dropped from the air to burn down huts and villages, but often it's going to come in contact with human skin where it burns off people's flesh. It is horrible what is happening here. But back on the mainland in the U.S., what's going on at this time is there's these two groups of politicians called hawks and doves. And hawks, these are going to be politicians that are supportive of the war. They believe the U.S. should win the war, protect American soldiers, you know, the country's place in the war or world. Sorry, most Americans supported the view of the hawks anyway. And then there's the doves. The doves are the opposition and think of the doves as being like peace does invoke that imagery and symbolism of, you know, peace, you know, so doves are the opposition. They don't support the war. These are very much the minority in America, but minority groups like African-Americans are less likely to support the war. Some notable figures like Muhammad Ali, formerly known as Cassius Clay. He's the heavyweight boxing champion. He refused to enlist and report for service assignments on religious grounds. And Ali, Muhammad Ali, he had converted to Islam once he got his draft notice. So he was going by Cassius Clay and everything. He gets his draft notice. He then converts to Islam. And he had already won the boxing title of being the heavyweight boxing champion. But since he refused service and the draft, he lost his boxing title. Kind of sucks, but that was how things happened back then. And then there's Robert McNamara. Robert McNamara, he had been pretty supportive of the war in the beginning. uh, But he starts to waver in his conviction when he gets reports saying 300,000 VC are killed. But every year there's still news of more and more enemy numbers rising. And he starts to think, why was the war being fought for some backward nation like Vietnam that really didn't matter in the grand scheme of things to America? But he finally resigns on the principle that he can no longer support the war no matter how much Johnson wants him to continue the airstrikes and bombings. So as the cost of the war is continuing to climb, it reached at one point, it was $2 billion a month was how much this is costing. But inflation starts to rise and grow prices are going up but Lyndon Johnson because of his stance with his great society programs and the war on poverty he refuses to try to raise taxes to try and offset the cost of the war so they're kind of stuck in rocking a hard place right now okay so talking about Vietnam here things are not looking good at all and then it just kind of all unravels here especially with what's called the Tet Offensive. Tet is the Vietnamese version of the Lunar New Year. Kind of like Chinese New Year, but the Vietnamese celebrate as what's called Tet, just T-E-T. But on Tet, 19 VC Viet Cong, they bombed an American embassy and they make their way inside to attack the soldiers there. Eventually, they will be all killed within an hour, but... This incident leads to what is called the credibility gap. You know, and if we supposedly are winning the war, we're so successful knocking out the enemy, right? Then how can the military and all the intelligence organizations and agencies have not known that there were enemy combatants so close to them? They lost all credibility, right? So as the war is waging on, it's not progressing at all. It's looking more and more like a stalemate, just like we had in Korea. And... It's not looking so good. Yeah, it's really not. 
So as the 1968 campaign for president is drawing near, this campaign season and the elections all drawing out, it's coming to a close or it's coming closer. LBJ is more and more unpopular. So he announces his decision not to run for president again. And so it leaves the race wide open for the taking. 1968 is going to be a very critical year in America. In April 1968, Martin Luther King, MLK, he will be shot by an escaped convict while lounging on his hotel back balcony in Memphis. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy is going to be assassinated by an Arab nationalist, and he had just won a very crucial California Democratic primary. It was looking like he was going to be the next president, possibly, at least the Democratic candidate for president. But uh, these men... Very much they're part of the liberal tradition. They have both fought for civil rights. You know, Bobby Kennedy was the attorney general under his brother. But it seems that this whole era of greater change is coming to an end. And LBJ chooses his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, to be his successor. But since he's closely tied to the Vietnam policy under Johnson, he's just as unpopular as LBJ. And so the Republicans... They then choose Richard Nixon. And Nixon had rebranded himself as a moderate. He's not the staunch anti-communist crusader he was once known as, especially as VP under Eisenhower. But at the 1968 Democratic National Convention, anti-war protesters have been fighting off and on for about a week with the Chicago police. The protests turned into the riot as the police uh, started bringing out clubs, riot gear, tear gas. It's not a good situation at all. But the demonstrators, they'll be throwing eggs, rocks, balloons or bags filled with paint or urine. And the convention is not going to be viewed as a point of uniting the party like normally the party conventions are. But instead, it's rather just what's going wrong in the country. And the demonstrations here aren't the only ones in the world. In China, students were a big part of Mao Zedong's. Uh, vanguard and he names them the red guard they encourage a big cultural revolution to rid china of all the bourgeois class and capitalism but it ends up ultimately leaving the country in economic shambles in europe there's going to be other student movements in italy students were protesting the uh, marxist philosophies of the soviet union and also the italian communist party and france students at the sorbonne They protest the university's policy of punishing demonstrators in Czechoslovakia. Students were openly rebelling to rid the country of their Soviet regime in the 1968 Prague Spring. But here, Soviet tanks would be rolling in to crush the rebellion. But American students, they know they're not alone in this. They're not the only country in the world doing this. So it almost kind of cements their resolve. And George Wallace, governor of Alabama, he had made headlines for refusing to integrate the University of Alabama. He decides to form his own third party in 1968 called the American Independent Party. Nixon insisted there were those that supported him or even the government in the war, but he did not openly express his views in public. But Nixon comes out to win over Humphrey and Wallace. Uh, he basically had the Vietnam mess just dumped in his lap. And so Nixon's national security advisor is going to be a man named Henry Kissinger. 
And he had a similar desire for how to handle the Vietnam crisis. Both of these men, Kissinger and Nixon, they wanted peace with honor. Or in other words, end the conflict, uh, surrendering or retreating in, you know, pretty embarrassing defeat. But, you know, it is what it is. To try and neutralize criticism at home, Nixon began delegating the ground fighting to the South Vietnamese, and he started withdrawing American troops as well. The American troop levels, they dropped from 543,000 in 1968 to 334,000 in 1971, but by early 1973, there's barely 21,000. So he's really scaling down all that, and he's getting them out. But one of the worst atrocities of the war becomes public knowledge during Nixon's first term in office. And this is the My Lai Massacre. In 1968, U.S. Army troops, they had executed nearly 500 people in the South Vietnamese village of My Lai. And it's spelled M-Y and then L-A-I, two words there. And there were a large number of women and children there. And the massacre was known only to the military until 1969 when the journalist Seymour Hirsch, he broke the story and photos of the massacre uh, appeared in Life magazine, and so it discredited the U.S. all around the world. There were high-ranking offices, officers that participated in the Milai Massacre and its cover-up, but only one soldier, and he was a low-ranking second lieutenant named William Calley, he's the only one convicted of the whole thing. And if you want to learn a little more about this Milai Massacre, the PBS American Experience series, they did a documentary on My Lai. And you can just look up My Lai PBS documentary and find it. If you have Amazon Prime, it's available for free with your Prime subscription. But William Calley, he is later pardoned by Nixon because Nixon was like, why should this one fellow be put to blame when he's not the only one that was acting and all this? So he gets out of it. But in 1969, Nixon, he began a campaign that Johnson was opposed to, and this is invading Cambodia. And Nixon launched a series of bombing attacks against the North Vietnamese supply depots inside Cambodia. And over the opposition of his secretaries of defense and state, he ordered American troops into Cambodia to wipe out North Vietnamese bases there. There are a wave of protests that follow this. Uh, it was astonishing. For the first time, these protests took place on campuses nationwide. And this is the first time we're seeing students die. On May 4th, 1970, at Kent State University in Ohio, uh, National Guardsmen fired into an anti-war rally, wounding 11 students and killing four. Less than two weeks later, at Jackson State University in Mississippi, guardsmen stormed a dormitory, killing two black students. And because of this, more than 450 colleges across the country closed in protest. And so all across the country, the spring semester was essentially canceled. Sounding familiar, folks? A little bit different situation, right? But you see, like, in times of crisis when the country is seeing a massive like change or crisis going on, everything shuts down, right? But kind of temporarily, it seemed this Vietnamization works. More American troops are coming home. South Vietnamese forces are improving. But for American GIs, morale is a constant, constant low. 
Why were they fighting a war being asked to put their lives on the line when it appeared there would be no victory? And the U.S. starts to shift some of the military burden for containment, the whole containment policy, to other allies. So it's like we're not going to be patrolling the entire country or the entire world with this, right? Japan is going to be responsible for containment in the Pacific and the Middle East, the Shah of Iran is responsible for it. Zaire, the nation of Zaire and Central Africa and South Africa, the apartheid government is going to be responsible for containment. But at the same time, Nixon and Kissinger, they look for new ways to contain Soviet power, not simply through nuclear deterrence, but through negotiations to try and ease the tensions. And this is known as detente, D-E-T-E-N-T-E. And so in a series of meetings between 1970 and 72, Nixon and the Soviet premier at the time, Leonid Brezhnev, they resolved tensions over Cuba and Berlin as well. They signed the first Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, one, also known as SALT. This is a very symbolic step toward trying to end the Cold War arms race. And Nixon believes he can break the Cold War impasse that had kept the U.S. from more productive dialogue with the Soviet Union. All right, so Nixon, he's not making Vietnam a priority anymore because he's starting to scale most of that back towards the responsibility of the South Vietnamese forces. So he can start looking to other more domestic policies. In the Nixon administration, they will support the passage of the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969. This required environmental impact statements for all major public projects. In 1970, Nixon will establish the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. Their first major act recognizes Rachel Carson's campaign. Remember, Rachel Carson was the author of the book Silent Spring. And their first big act with the EPA will ban most domestic uses of the pesticide or insecticide DDT. The president's also going to sign a bill establishing an Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. And they have to enforce health and safety standards in the workplace. Right? Nixon's also going to sign the Clean Water and Clean Air Acts into law. Also the Marine Mammal Protection Act as well. Nixon does more for environmental policy than most people give him credit for. And quite possibly more than most other presidents, even to this day. So on April 22nd, 1970, millions of Americans will demonstrate their commitment to a healthy environment as they will celebrate the first Earth Day. New laws that follow uh, during this whole environmental era. So I mentioned the Clean Air Act that comes in 1970, Occupational Health and Safety Act, right? That creates OSHA. That's 1970 as well. Water Pollution Control Act comes in 1972. Endangered Species Act comes in 73. All of them are trying or have the goal of improving the environment, worker safety and health conditions, also wildlife that can become extinct if steps are not taken to try and set things right. And then there's finally the end of the war. So a peace settlement had eluded Nixon because the North Vietnamese continued to reject any peace agreement that left the South Vietnamese government in power. And so in 1973, Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, he is sent back to Paris and a treaty is finally arranged. Three months later, the last American units are home. And then there's the 1972 election. 
So Nixon wins in a landslide. He receives nearly 61% of the popular vote. He carries every state except for Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. The returns reveal how fractured those traditional Democratic voting blocs have become. George McGovern received only 38% of the big city Catholic vote. He lost 42% of self-identified Democrats overall. And the 1972 election marks a pivotal moment in the country's shift to the right. You know, observers legitimately wondered whether the 1972 election results proved the popularity of conservatism or if it just showed that the country had grown weary of liberalism and the changes it brought into, you know, the national scene. And then there's a break-in that happens, right? June 17th, 1972, five men carrying wiretapping equipment will be apprehended there at the Watergate Hotel, attempting to break into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee, the DNC. There's a White House spokesman spokesman that dismisses the episode as just being a third-rate burglary attempt, but pressed even further, Nixon himself denies any White House involvement in the incident. The two masterminds of the break-in were G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt. They were former FBI and CIA agents currently working for Nixon's committee to re-elect the president. It was known as CREEP. That was the acronym for it. But Nixon kept the lid on it until after the election. But in early 1973, one of the Watergate burglars started to talk. In the meantime, there were two reporters at the Washington Post, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. They uncovered creeps links to the key White House aides. And in May 1973, there was a Senate investigating committee that began holding nationally televised hearings where administration officials implicated Nixon in the illegal cover-up. Yeah. So on to the Oval Office with this. So over the summer of 1973, there's going to be a string of officials that testify at these televised Senate hearings. Each witness takes the trail of the burglary and its cover-up higher into White House circles. Uh, Then John Dean will give his testimony. He declared the president had personally been involved in the cover-up. The testimony remained Dean's word against the president's until the Senate committee staff discovered, almost by chance, kind of, that since 1970, Nixon had been secretly recording all conversations and phone calls in the Oval Office. Yeah, this is... And so the reliability of Dean's testimony is no longer central because the tapes could then just tell everything. And this is where Nixon's paranoia kind of got the best of him because Nixon is known for having been a very paranoid man. And he was... This kind of where his anti-communist mentality comes in, that everybody's out to get him. And so he started recording all his conversations with everyone in the White House and the Oval Office. But Nixon agreed to the appointment of a special prosecutor, Harvard Law Professor Archibald Cox to investigate new Watergate disclosures that may come out. And so when Cox subpoenas the tapes, the president refuses to turn them over, citing executive privilege in matters of national security. Now, executive privilege is where executive branch officials, not necessarily the president, but anyone within the executive branch, it could be someone in like one of the bureaucratic agencies, for instance, they say they're not going to disclose any information or turn over any documents as it's a matter of national security. 
and like it can threaten that. And so the courts, though, the federal courts will overrule that position. And the president offers instead to submit written summaries. But Cox rejects that. He's like, no, I want the tapes. And on Saturday night, on October 20th, 73, Nixon fires Cox. Evidence unrelated to Watergate reveals that his vice president, Spiro Agnew, had systematically been soliciting bribes, both as being governor of Maryland and while serving in Washington, D.C. He resigns from the vice presidency in October as well. And so under the provisions from the 25th Amendment relating to succession of the presidency, Nixon then appoints someone to replace Spiro Agnew as vice president. And the man he will appoint will be Gerald Ford, the representative Gerald Ford from Michigan. And this new special prosecutor that Nixon will appoint for the whole thing is a lawyer from Texas named Leon Jaworski. He's the new special prosecutor. By April of 1974, Jaworski's investigations lead him to request additional tapes. Again, the president refuses, but he's going to kind of begrudgingly supply some 1,200 pages of typed transcript on the tapes. But the House Judiciary Committee, they will adopt three articles of impeachment charging that Nixon had obstructed justice, he had abused his constitutional authority and improperly using federal agencies to harass citizens, and he had hindered the committee's investigation. But his tapes... The tapes are the smoking gun. Conversation days after the break-in showed Nixon knew the burglars were tied to the White House staff and knew that his attorney general had acted to limit an FBI investigation into the whole thing. And so not willing to be the first president convicted in a Senate impeachment trial, which means that he would be removed from office, Nixon instead will resign on August 8th of 1974. So, yeah, that's Watergate and Nixon, folks. (laughs) Kind of interesting. But, yeah, so when Nixon resigned, Gerald Ford, who was appointed, he was never elected into that office of vice president. He then becomes our first and to this day only president not elected to office. Not elected to that office, yeah. So... That's Vietnam and the Nixon administration and Watergate. I hope you guys had fun. But also just a little side note, part of the Attorney General like investigation committee, investigative team that looked into trying and put Nixon away and uncover everything, part of that whole judicial team was none other than Hillary Clinton. She took that position not long after uh, graduating from Georgetown, where she met her husband, Bill Clinton. Yep. So I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. I'll catch you later. Bye.